Hi, I'm Will Wheaton from the TV Crimes Podcast, Radio Free Burrito, and some TV shows, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. a question about whether or not it was dignified for a member of Congress to write a comic book, particularly yeah. an icon like John Lewis. Um, and I think there was a lot of prejudice against comics um, in general, you know, just that like, oh, they're for kids. No matter how many um, zip, bang, pow, comics aren't for kids articles come out, right. they, just, they just didn't get it. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Twitter at the GBB Podcast, Facebook the GBB Podcast, and the new Facebook page layout is really awesome. I got to get into it. I don't know. Do do you have it yet for for uh, our Great Big Beautiful Podcast, Jamie? Are you seeing it on your browser? I don't even know what you're talking okay. about. Okay. All right. Whatever. We'll just go <laughs> off of that. No, they have a they have a new they have a new setup for managing your page, and it's really neat. Oh, okay. No, I am. I don't use Facebook very much, so uh, it could have changed. Right. That's why probably you don't know what I'm talking been. about. Okay. Yeah, probably wouldn't have even noticed. Jamie is not on the Facebook or the. Not on the Facebook. I'm what? an old curmudgeon. He's not on the Snapchat or anything like that. Nope. No, no. <laughs> but I'm on the podcast. You are on the podcast, which is very cool because not a lot of people have their own podcast. No. It's a pretty, pretty cool thing, man. It's cool. I enjoy it. Pretty I think cool we're pretty guy. good at it. Yeah, I think it's podcast fun. thing. Well, today is a really cool and really special interview um, just because of the content of, of the book that we're going to be talking to the, the uh, creators about. And Jamie, I, I didn't know much about it before you were trying to tell me about it because I am Canadian. You're Canadian. It's kind of excusable that you right, didn't know, right. but not and really. Jamie was going through like a list of people. He's like, do you know who John Lewis was? And I, I mean... I probably should, I guess. And I was just like, you probably know his face, but you yes. didn't know the name. You're, yeah. you're like, oh, no. I was like, no. And he goes, uh, well, do you know who Martin Luther King Jr. is? <laughs> I was like, yes, I do well, know. Who I that don't is. know what you guys know up in Canada. <laughs> like I had to cover my bases. No, it's cool. That's cool. So John Lewis. Uh, yeah. Well, we don't have John Lewis on the episode. No. I, yeah. Well, I mean, they would have uh, known that anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. They would, you're right. They, they, they've already clicked on it. Yeah. Um, but we have uh, we have Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell who are the true creative uh, drivers behind the books. The book is the book. It's, it's a series of three books. It's called March. So it tells the story of uh, Congressman John Lewis John Lewis's life and uh, what he experienced and all the major events of the civil rights movement in the '60s. Um, and obviously, Martin Luther King plays a role. That's why I was giving Justin a hard time about it. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know or are Canadian, um, uh, Representative John Lewis is still in Congress. He's a representative from Georgia. Um, or he, he represents Atlanta. Um, and he is 
one he's the last um major figure of the civil rights movement but he's one of the last remaining uh figures of the civil rights movement and he's still very active um he's still very much the face of of equality and 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 civil rights and um and uh he's just he's just an inspiration and so these books uh march the third one just came out tell his story they're graphic novels um andrew aden wrote the book along with um representative congressman lewis and nate powell did all the art we have a fantastic i mean it's just it's just it's a we we talk a lot about the book and the process Mm -hmm. of getting it made and the research that they did and working with the congressman um but it's just it's just a fascinating conversation um andrew who co-wrote the book or wrote the book along with the congressman works in his office here in washington so he sort of had unprecedented access to him he you know like he says in the interview i think uh, you know if they ever had a question about something they could just call him up and ask him which is just phenomenal um but yeah if you haven't read the books if you you know if you if you don't know what they are do search them out do scope them out there they've won just oodles and oodles of awards at name an award that a book can win almost and they've they've got it they're on they're on they're in schools across the country they're on reading lists around the around the country um it's not often that you can point to a book and, and say that's an important book mm-hmm. you know you could you'd say it's a good book it's an enjoyable book i love that book it meant a lot to me as a kid or it means a lot to me now but there's not many books especially when you're talking about graphic novels that you can point to and say yeah. that's important that's an important book and it tells mm-hmm. an important story and it should be required reading. Exactly. And I have a soft place in my heart for um, for books that are set in history, like graphic novels, for example. Again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, I, the one I remember and I think a lot of people know is Mouse. Oh, of course. That, that was one of my I read it as a as a you know, 11, 12 year old. And that stayed with me my entire life. I feel like this book I haven't read it yet. So but I feel like this book will be alongside that on library shelves as how important oh, yeah. it is. It for really sure. is. 100%. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are going to play the interview for you right now, and it is a lot of fun. So here you go. Nate and Andrew, thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat. Um, this is It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Um I guess we're going to start probably where every interview starts. And forgive me if you've told the story a thousand times, but how did both of you become attached to March to begin with? Um, well, it, it started in 2008. Uh, I was serving as the press secretary on the congressman's reelection campaign. And it was coming down to the end of the campaign. And folks were talking about what they were going to do afterwards. Some folks were going to go to the beach. Some folks were going to go see their parents. And I said I was going to go to a comic book convention. And a lot of the folks, they laughed. Um, but one person said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement, and it was very influential. And that was John Lewis. Mm. And so when he told me about that, I was just captivated by the idea of a comic book playing a meaningful role in the civil rights movement. And so, um, you know, after I learned about that comic book, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, and, like, it was so well done. And it just seemed like, you know, why couldn't there be a, gra- a comic book about John Lewis? And so I started asking him, and uh, eventually he said he he said okay, but only if you write it with me. And mm-hmm. so that's sort of how I came involved with it. It was this little nugget of an idea um, that's just grown and changed in so many ways. And then you know once once we finally found a publisher, Top Shelf, um, you know that's where we pick up with Nate. 
Yeah, basically, I've been working with Top Shelf since about 2005, and I had started correspondence with them around 99 or 2000. So we've had a very long, uh, close relationship. And I remember reading the press release about <clears throat> Top Shelf signing March, maybe in like summer of 2011. Uh, and I was like, oh, what a cool idea for a graphic novel. However, I didn't put together that the lack of an artist on the press release meant they needed an artist. Uh, <laughs> so I was busy and you know, I just went to go do whatever I was doing. But a few weeks later, our publisher, Chris Starros, gave me a call and strongly suggested that I try out for the role of artist. Mm-hmm. And in that capacity, it was very much like collaborating with anyone else. So Andrew and Congressman Lewis directly sent me some sample pages of script. I made demo pages out of it. I got notes back from them. I worked on revisions and tweaks. And then very quickly, we realized we just liked each other and we wanted to to go ahead and, and make this the team. Yeah. I mean, Andrew, you said that, you know, you, you kept, you know, planting that seed in his mind. Was there any... Was there any hesitation from him? You're like, well, I don't know if a graphic novel is really the right format or, you know, did you have to, how, how much of a, of a selling job did you have to do? Uh, I mean, I had to work for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was, uh, I, I think the way I talk about it usually is at first he said, well, maybe, which if you ever uh, work in professional politics, you'll find is a, a very nice way of saying no. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that became sort of was, I mean, in retrospect, it was almost kind of like a joke at a certain point because we would just have these genuine conversations about, um, you know, how do we teach John Lewis's story to young people? How do we reach young people politically? And, and how do we teach nonviolence to a new generation? Right. 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 And I would be that guy in the room being like. Uh, I think you should write a comic book, you know, and, um, you know, I just kept being that guy until I think it sunk in. And, um, you know, the more we talked about that Martin Luther King comic, it sort of brought back memories for him. And then I read more about it. And, um, you know, even after he said yes, there was a, uh, shoot six months to a year where it was like still just talking about like how the idea would actually work. Mm -hmm. Like, do we put together a proposal? Do we do, um, like, like who do we actually even talk to? Like, who's the first person you talk to in that conversation? Right. Just, (laughs) just imagine you're that kid and you're like, I have no idea. Um, and it's funny because it ended up being people that I met at those comic cons that I would go to, that I still go to. Um, who helped me find a home for March. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You when you're in politics, I would imagine it feels like sometimes you know absolutely everybody. And then you get yourself into this dream project that you've been pestering him about. And you're like, well, I I know nobody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, I uh I I like Googled the phone numbers and I called the front desk of the major companies. That's where you, you start. Know? And yeah. like I, I went back <laughs> And I looked at the editors of my favorite comics. That's sort of how I ended up. My, the first person I actually called was Karen Berger uh, at, at Vertigo. Uh-huh. Um, and she was a big proponent of the project. It just got lost in the reorganizing. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's it's you start where anybody starts. You call the front desk. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, March is it's certainly ambitious in the scope of the, of the storytelling in the book. And I know Nate, a lot of your previous books, 
you weren't afraid to cover, you know, some serious topics with what with the stories that you were telling. I guess what for both of you, what is it about graphic novels and that format that really lends itself so well to that type of storytelling, which is relatively a recent thing, you know, seeing serious in quotes, serious storytelling being done in this format? Well, for me, uh, one of my entry level you know, anxieties just on the ground floor as I joined the project was I, I think, you know, I think that Andrew and I both, uh, were kind of on, on high alert to watch out for anything that might make this fall into, uh, like the dreaded category of, you know, just dry perfunctory nonfiction or historical comics storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it's funny cause you know, there's a component that is, an homage to the the like you know house 50s style that made uh you know martin luther king and the montgomery story in retrospect distinct to us it was this this book that was kind of lost to the sands of time despite its impact and then so it's just this real treasure to rediscover but definitely done in a certain kind of head-on house six panel grid style um chock full of caption text and uh you know like so entering it you know i was very concerned about uh not having the experience the subjective intimate readership experience that we all love about comics lost to the content and i think andrew once you know almost immediately when i realized andrew was also a lifelong comics nerd and that we had you know all these things in common that went by the wayside and also in that first book um i was immediately given just a high level of trust and faith in terms of like being set free with my own personal storytelling style and so that let us quickly figure out how our collaborative method would work together to make something uh entirely new Um, neither one of you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think ne- neither one of you was alive during the time period, you know, that you talked about in the books. You're correct. How much, <laughs> how much, uh, research did you have to do? How much came from the congressman? How much, um, you know, came from books? Uh, where do you start with that? Um, <laughs> So, I mean, I guess it came in layers, right? The first, I guess you've got um, your anchor layer is John Lewis's story. Right. And, you know, some of these stories that we talk about or that he tells in, in, you know, like scenes and vignettes are actually stories you will hear him tell. Um, and like the chicken story in book one, right? Like if you come to a March event, you'll hear John Lewis tell you the chicken story and you'll still get goosebumps and like he'll throw in a punchline and you'll love it. Um, but how do you take that iconic story that he's been telling since 1961 and make that timeless on the page? And so, you, you know, you, you listen to him and you, you hear his voice. And I mean, we watched and read um, so many of his speeches and notes from his appearances and um, just troves of these digital archives that now exist um, to try and find his voice at every moment. And whenever we had a question, we could just call him. And sometimes, you know, he had the perfect answer. 
sometimes he was just pointing us in the direction to find the fact that we hope to find. Um, we were lucky because so many, so, so many of the documents from that period are beginning to be digitized. And so you have a much easier time finding what you're looking for. Uh, there's a scene that uh, Nate dubbed the Council of Elrond, um, which is... <laughs> There's that's not the only Lord of the Rings reference in there actually. Um, there, there's a and, and because it's this long scene and and part of what we're trying to show though is the back and forth, the thought, the process, and, and you have to look at it and say, well, how do you know what they really said in that meeting? But we actually had the meeting minutes, mm. so that they were giving the point by point of what was actually said, and so. Um, you've got a layer on top of that that is just all about digging and finding facts and making sure that you put as much information in there as humanly possible without overwhelming everybody um, and make it as right as possible. You want it to be a document that isn't just a piece of art, but it's a piece of history because it is as true as you can possibly make it. But, you know, then there's the part that Nate, I mean, you can talk about this. The level of photography during the movement has created a style unto itself. And mm -hmm. I think Nate's, re Nate's own research in looking at the pictures and looking at um, the oral descriptions and just the details that we didn't think about. I mean, I was always blown away when he would come to us with some piece like a, a fact or like an extra detail on a page or something like that. They dug up himself. You can talk. Nate. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, um, <clears throat> Prior to March Book One, prior to signing on to March, I had spent 2008 through 2011 drawing this book called The Silence of Our Friends, uh, which um, takes place in 1967 and 68, and it's based on the real-life account of Mark Long, the author, uh, as a kid growing up outside of Houston, Texas, against the backdrop of a forgotten chapter of the movement. And over the the course of drawing that book, not only did I establish uh, the ink wash style and the general kind of narrative, like the semiotic framework that I would use in March, but it also kind of gave me a crash course in just entry level reference and research that I would need for March. Um, and so that kind of got me ready enough to tackle the enormity of the information that was coming at me from Andrew and from Lee and from Congressman Lewis himself and from my own reading. Um, and so once I was comfortable enough with the, the general um, details, because to me a lot of this was, was trusting that Andrew and Lee in particular, Lee Walton being our editor as well as our publicist, um, you know, that they were, they're just very thorough, very perceptive and very curious individuals. So, I, you know, I, I trust at face value what they're, you know, that they're vetting what they're sending to me and I'm processing it too. But I realized that whenever possible, especially because so much of this information is so tight and controlled, it has to do with reading and digging up photos and looking through the photos objectively as an observer. Um, I was losing, you know, I needed, I needed to kind of look out for any free space in which I could actually employ more, more of that intuitive information. And so being a Southerner and being somebody who spent my elementary school years living in Montgomery, Alabama, my family's all from Mississippi. I'm more broadly from Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I tried to rely whenever possible on my own environmental memories, the any physical details of the landscape, uh, of buildings, uh, of any experience which may actually tie me to the subject matter. Um, and so whenever possible, I would kind of open up with that uh, and then apply all of the reference and research that I had to it. Um, and it's sort of an audacious thing to say. Yeah. There's sort of a level of audacity that I was like trying to make scenes my own whenever mm -hmm. possible. And in effect, that's what I was doing as a storyteller. I'm basically tricking the part of me that would be nervous about the weight of all this information right. by trying to make it in some ways just another Nate Powell comic with another <laughs> like intuitive, uh, you know, sensitive protagonist or whatever. Yeah. So with three books, you were able to tell a fairly detailed story, but was there anything that you had to cut for whatever reason that you were, you know, got it about that you had to do it? Well, one of our, once originally March was a single volume. Mm -hmm. And so once, once I signed on as artist and I was looking through the script, um, I realized that the total length would be a lot more than the page count that the script initially called for. So we're like, well, if it's 600 pages, it's 600 pages. Let's just take our time and do it. And eventually, uh, Andrew and I at San Diego comic con in 2012, um, you know, we, we knew March would have, or speaking for myself, I knew March would be bigger than any book I'd previously worked on, but none of us had any idea what the real scope or scale of this project could be. So at that point we're, we're just thinking, you know, it's about telling this story. And so we're like, well, let's just take the pressure off. We'll divide it up into three books at its natural points and that way we're, we're more free to like do what needs to be done to tell the whole story. And when it came to a point where, you know, we were deciding what to cut, um, it sort of went against one of the central missions of March itself, which was to shine a light on people and moments that have been swept under the rug of history. And, uh, we kind of decided early on all of us together that, you know, nothing should be cut unless there's a very clear uh, and pronounced narrative need for it. Andrew? Um, I think that the suggestion to make it into a trilogy is, is one of the those great moments in, in its creation that fundamentally made it a better project. Yeah. Uh, because that first draft, there was definitely a point where I felt like I was trying to put everything in that I wanted to put in and not being able to do that. Um, I think, you know, the closest thing to what it ended up becoming was March book one. That was um, sort of, I guess, our, our most... Um, abridged version yeah. Yeah. Of, of any of these books. And I think part of that process was Nate and I and the congressman all learning to work together and then being able to just pour onto the page all of these thoughts and ideas and then have Nate just do his magic and turn them into these beautiful works of art that made sense. Um, and so the chance after the first book to sit down and rewrite book two into something totally different um having gone through the process of putting out a book and getting the feedback and understanding 
what worked and what didn't and what we could what Nate was capable of doing as well with the page um, because in many ways I had learned from this like how six panel style and you know Nate can go far beyond that and with the first book like he had to sort of insert himself his own on his own and as the books progressed I felt like I was able to play to his strengths like the first book never had a splash page written into it mm-hmm. and then by the second book it's like I put a few like we start with the like single panel profile of like somebody and it's just like I can shorthand it to Nate and be like a Philip Randolph hero shot you know mm-hmm. and it's like then you write the description and Nate's like perfect and then there's a Philip Randolph being a hero <laughs> um, and it was, well, just, and- it was just so much growth I don't know yeah. Well, I mean, it seems like it was a natural growth, too, of, you know, working together and, like you were saying, finding out what each of your strengths were. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, you, you kind of, you talked a little bit about, you know, the research that you did and, you know, being lucky enough to actually have the minutes from a lot of these meetings and, you know, the, the wealth of pictures of the, of the time period. What was the writing process, um, I, I guess, what was the writing process like with the congressman i mean did you guys each take stabs at drafts or did you just write and then he would look it over and be like oh i don't remember this or yeah you really nailed that i mean like how did that work between the two of you so um i mean before we started i mean i've got probably like 16 or 18 hours of audio interviews Mm -hmm. um where and it's not like we sat in a studio and did this like it was just like me with a handheld recorder being like okay Tell me about this. Tell me this story. Tell me that. Um, and listening to them as I, I would put together some of the captions. Um, and then I would try and work up a script draft. And we would talk about it. I'd sort of walk him through it. Um, he'd read some of them. and But then it would go through this extra process. It would go to, uh, especially later on, it would go to Lee, who's our, who's our editor, Mm-hmm. Um, and then the man just loves himself a Google shared doc. And so list of stuff. And sometimes it's like, this doesn't make sense. And I'm like, that's the way he says it. And, <laughs> and then there's this back and forth. Well, does the reader. And then it's like, you know, and then we go to, finally, if we get to a, a stalemate on something, the Congressman is a tiebreaker. Um, as he should like, be nine times out of ten I would win on that just because like I you know I'm right here and I know what he's gonna say and like um, but then like there would be the one that Lee would get and then that would be the one that would get run on like a newspaper clip or something <laughs> um, so you know it, it was there, there was no single way to do it um, and I think we did each book differently uh, I think especially as the trilogy grew uh, by the second book um, it was, uh, I was able to write with a freedom, um, and trust. Yeah. And, uh, I think that came through. I think it, it helped. Yeah. As, um, throughout this process, you know, not only, I mean, Andrew, you work with him, so you see him every day, but not only were you both lucky enough to sort of spend time with a, a genuine living legend, 
But I'm sure through all the press that you've done and the, you know, speaking engagements and school visits and, and comic conventions and everything, you've probably met thousands of people at this point um, whose lives were directly affected by the events that you put into the book. Um, and you're also inspiring generations who might be reading the story for the very first time. So with all that sort of being said, I'm wondering if you can you know, reflect a little bit and what, like, think about what was the most surprising part of this entire journey for you? Oh, man. I, I didn't know John Lewis would enjoy it so much. Yeah? Yeah, that, that can't be overstated. Yeah. yeah. This is a man who, like, had a great time and, and threw himself with such enthusiasm into helping get March into the world um, and, and just being a constant resource and advocate, um, especially when a lot of people thought this was a terrible idea. Yeah. That can't be overlooked. He was a champion for this idea when people were telling him it's a bad idea. Uh, and he didn't take the advice. He did what he thought was right. And then once it was done, you know, I'll never forget showing him the first copy. And he like, he held it up and then he kissed it. <laughs> and he was just, you know, and, and overarching this whole journey was the sort of the shadow of, um, his wife who passed away, um, the year before March came out and she was a librarian. And there were several moments on this where something happened and the Congressman would say, Lillian would be so proud of us. Mm. And, um, that's got to mean everything. Yeah. He's just, he's a beautiful human being, and, and it really showed um, while we did this. For many, graphic novels have relatively short shelf lives. However, the nature of this series, uh, the number of awards it's won, and to the extent it's made, it's been made onto reading lists and into schools across country, it pretty much guarantees it'll be around for a while. So did, was there more pressure for books two and three after the first came out because of that? Well, I'd say, I'd say there was no pressure for book one. So you're really on the, on the <laughs> right scale. There was nowhere to go but up. Um, I'd say that <clears throat> on a creative, like on the creator's end, um, it approaching book two was completely different in every way because of the reception. <clears throat> now, most importantly to me, in terms of the process of making the book. In considering it, um, I would say that my entire cartoonist life until the first book was actually released at San Diego Comic Con and in the weeks after, my entire cartoonist life prior to that, I had kind of, you know, it's not uncommon, but a kind of snooty author attitude about readership. I, I very much felt that I should never um, – anticipate the potential readership of any of my books, you know, like I should tell the stories that I need to tell the way that I need to tell them and books, you know, will get printed. And then those books magically find their way onto shelves and people find them and people read them. And that's all there is to it. Um, the historical component of this, you know, 
that attitude as it relates to March is very tied to the fact that I took for granted my whole life that all American kids grew up with a basic working knowledge of the civil rights movement. Uh, as I was taught by my Mississippi baby boomer parents living in <laughs> Alabama in the eighties. Um, and it was something that, you know, I had no reason to question that cause that was my experience. I wasn't, a, I wasn't really a dad yet. I, you know, I had one daughter who was still a baby and so she, her world wasn't expanding. So I wasn't aware of what kids were or weren't being exposed to. Um, once I realized that we were already within, you know, on the day the book one was released, that people were reading it in its entirety while standing in line for a signing, and they already had feedback and dialogue and questions for us, people were immediately, within minutes of the book being available, responding in a strong and genuine wow. way. Um, I kind of realized I had to throw almost all of those assumptions out the window. I had to realize that none, that, that no component of that history can be taken for granted because I was finally realizing what it meant for a generation to pass. Um, and I think that from my end of the, of the spectrum, entering book two and especially book two, book three, uh, it became a daily part of the process to consider the readership at every turn. I, in particular, I remember with book one, I think this was like a proto wake up call for me, Andrew. Uh, we were halfway through the book and I was doing the recap scene for uh, Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. And to me, it's such a go to, you know, it's, it's a, for, for, for the best possible reasons, you know, like everyone should know this story. And, but because I felt it was so embedded in our collective history as Americans, I was like, well, come on, you guys, like, do we really need to spell it out uh, in <laughs> so many words? You know, like we can really just talk briefly about the bus boycott, right? Sadly, and, no. Yeah, I think Andrew or maybe even Lee or Chris Starros just kind of very gently uh, <laughs> was like, well, I think we probably need to, in case people may not, younger people may not be so familiar. And um, yeah, as the months went by, I, I realized that that was at the core of my glaring error in approaching March. And that's why to me, book two is, it's like on a different planet from book one. Uh, my entire approach changed and it all became about the decades and decades of readership, which may come in the future. Yeah. And only as really only in these last few months as book three has rolled out and as all of this continues and, and increases uh, that I realized that I don't know. It is so far exceeded our initial expectations that we still don't have any idea what the ultimate scope and scale of March as a project and and its potential is. Yeah, I mean, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I guess after uh, book one came out, um, I remember very distinct, distinctly having a moment to myself thinking like here you just debuted this book and nobody's ever heard of you you've never written another thing in your whole life that's been published like this and it hits it number one on the new york times it's first week out and people are starting to like you know hit you up on the internet and all this sort of stuff going on and like you've been working on this for so many years but it was always your thing like sort of almost like like off in your own world, right? Yeah. 
And then they say, okay, now write another one. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I didn't. I didn't I'm just one. catching my breath. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I just remember that moment of like, I mean, okay. It's like Home Alone or something where it's like, this is my house. Like I yeah. built this, you know, like I must defend it, you know. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I struggled to like get a full uh, grasp on like the magnitude of the situation just like kind of drowned for like a week or two. Um, and um, then we started back and it was just like one day after another, you know, man. I mean, and you, you, you're, you're both basically saying the same thing. That, like this, the, the legacy of these books is, is so far out at this point that it's hard to tell how, how vast, you know, like how, how long of a reach it's going to have and how many people it's going to touch and how long it's going to be used in schools. So it kind of blows my mind, like, Andrew, what you were saying, that people were trying to convince you guys that this was a bad idea. Um, and I'm wondering if you know, like at the time when it was still just ideas in your mind and you were just kicking those ideas around, what were the reasons for them thinking that this was just a bad idea to do? Well, I think there was a question about whether or not it was dignified for a member of Congress to write a comic book, particularly yeah. an icon like John Lewis. Um, and I think there was a lot of prejudice against comics um, in general, you know, just that like, oh, they're for kids. No matter how many um, zip, bang, pow, comics aren't for kids articles come out. Right, right. Um, they, just, they just didn't get it. And... Um, Especially, I mean, I was 24 when we started this. So, like, just throw into that mix, too, that, like, oh, yeah, and the guy is going to go write it and put this whole deal together and, like, find you a publisher and find, like, and, like, handle it is 24. So yeah. I'm sure he's going to do great. <laughs> yeah. you know? And hasn't written hasn't written a, a, something like this before. So right. fantastic. Like, Facebook, man, he'll be fine, you know? <laughs> Well, I mean, I was going to ask you about that anyway, because I was, you know, you say that, you know, that was the reason people gave that it wasn't dignified. And it's it's that the the misconception around comics is that they're still just, you know, stuck in the it's stuck in the 60s, ironically, that they're the Silver Age, you know, Biff Bang Pow kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering now that the books have come out have you still run into any of that? Because I know a lot of authors and, and, and graphic novel creators say that they still hear that sometimes from parents is that, Oh, that's not, that's not a real book or they don't want their kids reading graphic novels because that's not real reading. I, I find that it comes around that, that sentiment comes around from the opposite side. It's by people telling you, you're re basically you're hearing between the lines of what people are saying. Sometimes Someone will be like, oh, yeah, you know, talk about the, you know, how much their their kids or their parents, uh, even if, if they give it to their parents and they're you know, older, um, it's the reception of someone and how strongly they identified with it or how much they learned or how powerful it was. Uh, these are these are this is genuine praise, but sometimes there's a second component, which is basically saying that's not what at all what I was expecting when I was getting into this. I did take a chance on it, expecting it to be, you know, something else uh, of the lesser variety. And to my shock, it turns out it's okay. It's not bad. <laughs> uh, that that's what I hear sometimes, and and that's adorable. 
mean, you know, I, I get the guys now who are Washington political people, like electeds and unelecteds, and I get two things. One, will you write a graphic novel about so-and-so? <laughs> the hottest idea in town. Have you ever thought about it? And I'm like, no, I never thought about writing a graphic novel about Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry. I just It never came to me. Or you get now I get these uh, emails and like folks around the hill will just want to like get coffee, talk about creative writing, see how I got into the biz, you know, <laughs> and um, <laughs> like I, I mean, I don't mind it, actually. Like, that's OK. Like, let's all like like we can all have a side project. We can all work yeah. on things. And, mm-hmm. and if you use your creativity, maybe maybe your book will work. I don't know. And I'll tell you what I know. And that's all I can do. Um, but there's definitely no more like poo pooing on comics. Like they got over that once they saw how well March did. Yeah. If he can do it and, and win, you know, how many awards you guys have won, then I guess anybody can do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, that's the other thing. They're like, comics isn't hard to write. Like, yeah. Oh not, yeah. Anybody could do it. <laughs> if you just hire an artist, like it's not a big deal. He'll just make it in a few days. And it'll come out. Well, that is, I mean, since, since we're since we're in the company of fellow comic nerds, uh, it's 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 fair to comment that yeah the other the other side of what you're talking about, Andrew, is also that there's this there's this sizable component that thinks that the comic came full formed from John Lewis's. Um, <laughs> Like skill set, uh, and like it's, it's weird because you'll find yourself occasionally, you're you're really trying to be gracious, but you kind of have to fight for your recognition as one of the creators of the book, and people sometimes are actually resistant to that fact. It's it's so weird. It's like sometimes they don't want us to sign the book. They will just be like, "No, we just we just want the congressman to sign it." And we're like, because okay. he wrote it and drew it and bound it and you know and, and printed it. He's but a one man The way they say it, it's as if we're like, "Oh, it's a, yeah, I understand. I know how it is." Like, <laughs> like it's supposed to be a very the best part of it thing. all is is John Lewis will stop them and say, yeah. "Oh no, you want these guys to sign it too." <laughs> Every single time, he will not be. Like he, he just won't fall for it. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Nate, every bio that I read about you, I think the first line of every bio says that you started self-publishing when you were 14. So clearly you're proud of that. Yes. <laughs> um, and I, I have to ask, <laughs> what, what were you self-publishing at 14? What was the story? Just the normal stuff. My my uh, my first comic series that was published it was called DOA, and there were a couple of spinoff one shots too. Um, it was basically you know a dystopian guns and boobs superhero comic. It was <laughs> every kind of, I mean, every fourteen year old dreams about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was basically a mix of Cap of uh, Masamune Shiro's Appleseed oh. with, um, you know, like Chris Claremont X Men and, um. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it was very of its time. And actually, like, you know, it was weird that it came out at the peak of the first wave image boom, because as a 14 year old having this like, you know, not great <laughs> self-published comic on the stands at my local shop, I was buying, you know, like every image title that came out as it came out. And, and while it's true that even as a 14 year old, I remember getting 
um, brigade number two uh-huh. in ninth grade, looking at it and being like, I, I don't know how to say this, but like, I can draw better than this guy. How's <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> I didn't understand it, but you know, I also knew at the time that my own comics, while they aimed higher and like the concepts in theory were way cooler than whatever Rob Liefeld was <laughs> crapping out. I was just going to say, I think the early the early image is probably the single most um, the, the single strongest influence on artists today, because everybody was just like you looked at these books and they were like, I could do better than this. Yeah, I mean, that. that <laughs> That's very important. And like at the same time, though, I knew that my execution was still like there was a component of professionalism, even though there were parts of me that could draw better than whoever and who could script better than whoever. There was a level of professionalism in just sitting down and doing the work with a certain set of tools that even those image books, like I really needed to pay attention to that. And I still loved reading them, you know, like ultimately it's about like it's about sitting down and having experience with the book. And so like, it was weird. Cause like, it's not like our, the ideas that my friends and I had were that exceptional. And so like, we would find these moments where the exact same plot elements or characters were popping up in these early image books. So we joked that they were like spying on us or whatever, but really it's that we had all in the early nineties <laughs> tapped into this entry level you know, DIY imagination and really that first wave of image, you know, like these were very, these were successful cartoonists who broke off and took a chance, but what they were doing, you know, from the Malibu days into becoming image was ultimately like a well-resourced, but ultimately DIY endeavor. And that was something that I greatly admired. Yeah. We, we also read that you used to send unsolicited copies of everything to the founders of top shelf. Did you get any type of response from them? <laughs> Oh yeah. Awesome. He published like, all of his books. <laughs> yeah. The thing, basically that's, I played the long game, man. I played the long game. <laughs> what, what I did, um, it was, I guess it was my junior year at SVA and I, I didn't really, well, I didn't plan on staying in New York. My life was centered around the bands that I was in and what I was doing in the underground punk scene. So a lot of my friends like, um, you know, we're interning at Marvel or DC and we're doing stuff and kind of getting their foot in the door. And I didn't, you know, like I didn't have any interest in following through with that because I didn't see myself ever staying in New York past the last day of school. Um, so I was trying to figure out how to take those next steps. And I just took an utterly like DIY punk route. And I just wrote a list of the artists and writers and editors and publishers I admired. And I sent a copy of everything I did to everyone on that list. And, uh, you know, I got some responses like, you know, slave labor also responded and dark horse responded and stuff, but it was Brett and Chris at top shelf who actually took the time to write me real critiques and would eventually were sending me prints and he would send me a couple of books. But with each book over the course of four or five years, yeah, I was getting written critiques and criticisms from them. And I was, you know, as I was exploring my own ideas in a, in a cave, I was also, you know, paying very close attention to what these people had taken yeah. the time to notice about what I was doing. Yeah. And Andrew, while, while Nate was sending off, you know, all of these unsolicited manuscripts and getting all this <laughs> feedback, you just, you just break right in with a multiple Eisner award winning uh, series. <laughs> it seems like you took the short, the shortcut. 
I mean, he, I, I think he might have had the better deal. I mean, remember, <laughs> I spent 10 years in professional politics. That was no... <laughs> no cakewalk, yeah. right? Um, so, I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know, I mean, away away from March now, you've, you've written for X-Files, you've written for Bitch Planet, so I assume comics writing is something that you want to continue to do. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's actually more than... Um, it's not like a job. Like it's fun for me. It's it's almost like relaxing. Um, it's it's a nice thing that I genuinely enjoy doing, which is such a change of pace. Because usually it's like a Grant and Barrett, like learn this, work really hard at that, you know. Um, and just just being able to to collaborate with um, some really spectacular people and and just go through this process, especially in fiction. Like I've published all this nonfiction. I've never published fiction really, and every time it's. It's a learning moment. Um, I feel like I definitely learned a lot between X Files and, and Bitch Planet, um, and I'm excited for that one to come out. I think you know people will see me putting my um, my career into my writing a little bit. Oh, nice! Um, but it's satire. So. I, I want to point out, since I'm not Andrew, I want to point out for Andrew that it was initially slated to be a backup story and got promoted to a feature story. Yay! There congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure they've said that yet, but yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you know I'm just lying. I'm just lying. I don't know. I think what it is uh, is they have like a space between arcs, and so they needed something, and it'd be like with a Kelly Sue issue, or with an essay going in the back from her. Um, so we'll see what it actually ends up being, but I'm just like super excited for it because mm-hmm. – uh, like that, what a what a fun yet like disturbing title yeah. uh, to play in, right? Like it's like okay, um, you, you've got an interesting political situation here. Let me help you. Yeah. Um, I, I actually got to help uh, also with their uh, sort of big picture planning for the government itself, um, oh, and, awesome. and designing a satirical government was sort of one of those moments where like I was made for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's got to be so surreal for you, right? Oh, it was great, though. I mean, because <laughs> you're like, it, it's theory. And so you're, you're more of just getting to, like, draw from the things you've seen abstractly versus experiencing them. Yeah. Um, and it's, it it kind of gives you a good perspective on what your, your day-to-day life is actually like. What's... Um... What's on the horizon for both of you guys? I know book three just came out and you guys are, you know, knee deep in press and stuff for that. But beyond beyond book three, beyond Bitch Planet, what what else have you guys got coming up? Uh, well, for me, I'm a, I have a my next solo graphic novel is called Cover. And uh, I actually started uh, the roots of it came from all the way back in like 2009. And uh, I kind of put it on the back burner mostly to meet with the increasing demands and responsibilities for March, uh, which wound up being a very good thing for cover. Just the time spent on that back burner, it marinated into a Mm. delightful sauce. And uh, I feel like the story itself really benefited from sitting there and having me play with it on and off for like five years. So now I'm, I'm uh, two thirds of the way done penciling it. um, And I'm just trying to carve out enough time to, to really dive in. I'm really hoping to have it out in 2018. Um, I'm doing a, a book with Van Jensen called Two Dead that's uh, 
finalizing exactly whether it's going to be a series or a graphic novel. We, we had to find a new publisher. Um, everything's cool, but that's on deck. And then I have a couple other things that are in the chamber that I can't talk about yet. Then the next few months, uh, all that's going to come out. Uh, I, I am going to, in the long term, also going to be working with my old buddy, Cecil Castellucci again. We did this Yay. book. Yeah. And, uh, we did this book called Year of the Beasts about five years ago, um, but we're going to be working on an all-ages slash kids book that's based around this drawing demand that my daughter had for me, which was for me to, to draw three princesses all eating onions. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I, I did. I fulfilled her request yes. and then I posted it online just like, oh, yeah, this is the kind of weird stuff I do every night with my daughter while we're drawing together. And Cecil was like, Nate, I love this. Do you mind if I just like play with it for a little bit and see if I had a story? I was like, yeah. And then the next day she was like, Nate, I've got it. And oh. she laid out just a quick you know, synopsis. And then over San Diego, we just got really hyped up on coffee and had two meetings where we started throwing around ideas. So oh, that's uh, fantastic. that will be happening as well. Excellent. We love Cecil. Cecil's been on the show. She's great. Yes. Andrew? Um, so possibly one book, but it's not, um, we haven't signed anything yet. Uh, written a proposal. We'll see where it goes. Um, and then, uh, did a story for the CBLDF, uh, annual, uh, Liberty that comes out in November. I think Nate actually did the cover, um, or one of the covers. And, uh, so I've got that. So we'll see how it goes. Awesome. And meanwhile, you got that day job, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that too. And that too. <laughs> a little thing called helping to avert the apocalypse. Exactly. <laughs> no small task lately. Yeah, just, just everybody promised me you're just going to vote. Like just just show oh, yeah. up and vote. <laughs> yeah, well, Justin's Canadian so he doesn't count, but I will we'll have everybody I, I promise you I promise you I would not vote for somebody we won't talk about. So. <laughs> <laughs> And I live in the bluest state that is possible that could possibly be. So, but I'm still gonna get out there. Yeah, we're gonna do something. But I mean, that honestly is like, I never thought March would be relevant in that sense. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sort of deeply surprised, and uh, but but feeling gratified, it makes our our work more more poignant, I guess, for me personally. Um, it might help, you know, if people understand. John Lewis, and they understand what it took to get the right to vote. Um, maybe it'll make them take it more seriously when they're given the opportunity to vote. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially since, like you were saying, that there's too many people out there who don't even know the stories. Yeah, uh, yeah. It absolutely can make a difference. So yes, get out there, vote. Make these books mean something, right? Make the stories mean something. <laughs> and that will probably be the only time you end a comics podcast with. <laughs> <laughs> TV. Get out the vote. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry, Nate. I just ruined it for you. I am so sorry. <laughs> Nate and Andrew, thank you guys so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Such a great conversation. This was. Thank, thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Now, Jamie, John Lewis staged a old-fashioned sit-in not that long mm -hmm. ago <laughs> yeah, it was just a few weeks ago as we we're recording this um 
Yeah, and I, I feel like I should have done the research. I'm I, I'm almost sure, almost positive it was in response to one of the all too common um, shootings that we have yeah. down here south of the border from you. Um, and uh, it was uh, the Democrats basically held a sit-in on the floor of the you know, of the Congress. Of, I think it was the, rep- the House of Representatives mm-hmm. and uh, and demanded a vote. And they didn't get one because the, the House was in session and every Republicans were refusing to come back and vote. Um, but they got a lot of headlines and um, got a lot of support. And so, you know, he's not just... One of these politicians that sits behind a desk and right. you know, sort of has forgotten where he's come from or doesn't doesn't really know why he's there anymore. Like he's still very much fighting the fight. Right. And what I love, um, what 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 I love in this interview that they talked about was that he was with them through the process and helping them with it, and you know, reading over stuff. And he loved it at the end. He kissed the book. That's that's so awesome. It's such a great such a great <laughs> image. It really is. Yeah, because a lot of the times you'd think not all the time, but the authors are pretty, or not they're removed, right from from mm-hmm. the, from the guy they're writing about or the thing they're writing about. And, right, exactly. Know, just to know exactly. that that's that's so awesome. Yeah. Ah, gushy, warm feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to thank everybody for clicking subscribe and download week after week. We appreciate you. We're our, really do. We're, our downloads are going up. We see them. Jamie messages me every once in a while. Hey, we just passed this milestone. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> it is cool. And, you know, we uh, we don't take it for granted. Every download, every listen means a lot to us. It really does. And um, those of you who take time out of your day to listen to us jabber on, um, it means a lot. And when you take extra time to send us a message on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and say, hey, listen to this episode and thought it was awesome or you you know you tweet people that we talk Mm -hmm. to and say hey i heard you on the show and i thought it was a great conversation that means a lot we see that and uh we try to respond to most of them if not all of them but uh keep it up we love you guys we do and if you want to join in on the conversation on facebook we'd love to chat you know talk whatever post anything you want on there we will Mm -hmm. talk about it um we are facebook.com slash the GBB podcast. That'll get you there. And Twitter is at the GBB podcast as well. And I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. And you have been listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Awesome. <laughs> have a great week. Take care. <laughs>